we have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, as we're moving on towards the closing sections of this letter, where Paul continues to teach this morning on sanctification, here in verses 12 to 17. And that's going to be our focus, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. And I invite you to follow along with me as we read together from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for Your grace now that we would hear the Word of God with faith, that we would hold fast to the things that are true, that we would turn, Father, from the things that belong to this world and belong to our former way of life in the flesh, that we would turn from those things, God, and that we would indeed put on godliness that should mark and define the people of God. We give You thanks for the righteousness of Jesus Christ that clothes us and gives us a right standing before You. And we ask now, Father, that we would hear the Word of God with faith to live out who it is that Christ has made us to be. Father, please keep me from error. Please give Your people discernment. Father, please help us to hold fast to the truth and to be built up in the truth, we pray, until the day that Christ returns. And we pray in His name. Amen. How many folks here this morning have or have had a garden? Anybody have a garden? Kim Fullerton came over yesterday to help Laura and the boys plant a little garden in the backyard. My dad and my grandfather keep a sizable garden out at my dad's place. And this past week, my dad uh, began the process of turning the garden over, as he says, turning it over. What that means is that they till up all the hard soil, they remove all the rocks, and they pull up all the weeds that have grown since last season. It's not, it's not glamorous work, but it is necessary for the garden to grow. But imagine if, after doing all of that hard work, my dad decided not to plant any seeds. What if, after, uh, what if his idea of gardening stopped with removing rocks and pulling weeds? That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? The entire point of pulling out all the bad stuff is so that the good fruit will grow. In fact, until you plant the seeds and harvest the crops, you haven't actually done any gardening. That's why you put away the bad in the first place. So that the good will put down roots and then grow and bring forth fruit. Friends, that twofold work of gardening pictures something important about the Apostle Paul's teaching here in Colossians chapter 3. 
You may remember last week that Paul exhorted the Colossians to put sin to death. Do you remember that? He urged them to put away whatever belonged to their former way of life. Sexual immorality, impurity, anger, malice, slander. Put it all away, Paul said. Which, if you think about it, is a bit like removing rocks and pulling weeds from last year's garden. It's necessary, but it's not the end goal. The end goal, like with the garden, is that something good will grow. That actual growth will happen. And that's what we see in this text today. Here in verses 12-17, to Paul continues to focus on sanctification. He's still urging the Colossians to grow in holiness, but the emphasis now is not what needs to be put away. It's not on pulling the weeds. The emphasis now is on planting the good seeds so that godliness will grow. The focus is on the positive aspect of growing in godliness. So, my hope, friends, is that this morning's sermon will give us the much-needed balance to last week's message. If you missed last week's sermon, I would encourage you to listen to it because it's a nice uh, balance, two sides of one coin, last week and this week. By all means, God's people need to kill sin, but they need to do so, as Paul will say this morning, in order that we might grow positively in godliness. And it is that aspect, it is that emphasis on godliness that will receive our attention today. Last week we focused on five marks of sanctification, how we need to kill sin. This morning we'll focus on three marks of growing in godliness, how we need to grow together in conformity to Christ. Three marks. Let me give them to you in advance. Number one, godliness grows in community. That's verses 12 to 14. Number two, godliness prioritizes gospel peace. That's verse 15. And then number three, godliness flows from the church's life together. That's verses 16 and 17. So, with an eye on positive growth, let's consider those truths together, beginning with godliness grows in community. Immediately, you can see Paul's emphasis on the positive side of sanctification. Notice the opening command of verse 12. Put on, Paul says. And then he goes on to list not a series of vices like last week, but a series of virtues. Put on is the command. The image is one of clothing. Paul envisions godliness as the wardrobe of the Christian. God's people must clothe themselves in the garments of Christ-like character. This is fitting for the people of God. This is how we ought to live. And indeed, Paul's command is rooted in the sovereign grace of God that has called His people to Himself. Notice how Paul describes the Colossians. Again, verse 12. Put on then, how? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Friends, that is a powerful statement of God's electing grace. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are the chosen people of God, Paul says. They belong to God, not by their own effort, but by God's grace. God has elected them. He has chosen them and made them His own. God has made believers His holy people. He chose them so that their lives would display His character. And God has set His love on believers. They are His beloved sons and daughters of God. This is the purpose of grace, that we would be holy and beloved. So notice what Paul is doing from the outset, friends. He is reminding the Colossians again 
of their union with Christ. He's pointing them back to the first, three, first four verses of the chapter once again. Believers belong to God through Christ, and that is the entire reason they must pursue godliness. You see, that's what the pursuit of godliness is about. It's about our daily lives matching up more and more with our identity in Christ. That's what it means to grow in godliness. We want how I live today to match up more and more with who I am in Christ. Believers are God's chosen people. And therefore, we must put on those garments of Christ-like character. Paul then comes to the virtues God's people must put on. Notice again the list that Paul provides, verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, Paul often includes these virtue lists in his letters. You think of Galatians 5 or Philippians 4 or 1 Timothy 6. But what's striking about the list here in verse 12 is the clear focus on other people. The virtues of verse 12 are community-oriented exclusively. Compassionate hearts describe a concern for other people, especially those enduring hardship. Kindness is a disposition of being ready to help others and do them good. Humility is not insisting on my own way. Not demanding that I receive the attention. Meekness is, quite simply, not being impressed with yourself. Or not taking yourself too seriously. And patience is a willingness to endure with other people. To be the kind of steadfast friend that we all would want. You see, every virtue in verse 12 is concerned not solely with me, but with my treatment of other people. Friends, I take this to be a much needed correction for our sometimes individualistic Christianity. There is a sneaky kind of me-centeredness that can creep into the Christian life. And it can lead us to define even something like godliness in almost exclusively personal terms. How am I doing? What's happening in my heart? How am I growing? How can I get what I need? And by all means, God's Word calls believers to cultivate godliness at the heart level. But here in chapter 3, Paul reminds us that such inward godliness must ultimately orient us outward to other people. Look, it's a good rule of thumb, friends. Godliness should make us less self-oriented and increasingly others-oriented. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that if we're treating others in an increasingly, if we're not treating others in an increasingly Christ-like way, then we really do have to question whether or not we're actually growing in godliness. This is why the local church is essential to the Christian life. You can't do godliness on your own. Just like you can't do Christianity on your own. You need other people. This was the great failure of those uh, monastic monks who went out into the desert to just live alone and get away from the world and be really godly people. You can't do that, according to the Bible, and be godly. You need other people. Because their lives become the arena within which you display Christ-like character. 
The church, the community, the people of God is essential to living the Christian life. Show me me someone who is growing in meekness or patience, and I'll show you someone who is putting on the garments of godly character. Even so, this does raise some questions, doesn't it? How exactly should we go about this work, and where do we find the strength to do so? How do we do this? Where do we find the strength to keep doing it? Well, in verse 13, Paul gives the first, he answers the first question with some clear instruction. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is foundational. Notice what Paul writes, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So, how do we go about putting on these godly virtues? By, by forbearing with and forgiving one another. These are the foundational acts of godliness. Forbearance is a godly putting up with someone. It means I am slow to be offended and quick to believe the best about another. Slow to be offended, quick to believe the best. A brother or sister might say something that sounds off to you, or they may mention something that could be taken insensitively, but instead of taking offense, I believe the best. And I ask for clarification before I make conclusions. That's forbearance. In fact, think of the last conflict you had with someone. It might have been last night. Or in the car on the way to church. Think of the last conflict you had with someone. Now, imagine the difference forbearance would have made. What if one of you had been slow to take offense and quick to believe the best? It would have made a world of difference, would it not? You see, that's the value Paul is telling us of forbearance. It diffuses diffuses hostile situations. And it helps us to pursue peace with one another. So I'd encourage you to ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, am I slow to take offense? Am I quick to believe the best? Am I a forbearing person? person. Forgiveness, then, is the other foundational act of godliness. When I have been wronged and someone seeks forgiveness, I should be quick to grant it. Now, I do want to be clear at this point that forgiveness is a two-way transaction. I can only grant forgiveness to someone who asks for it. If a person does not seek forgiveness, I can do a lot of good things. I can relinquish bitterness. I can refuse to take vengeance. I can even be willing to forgive them as Jesus was on the cross when He prayed, Father, forgive them. I can do a lot of good things before someone seeks forgiveness. But until they actually ask for it, I cannot grant forgiveness. It's a two-way transaction. But when that person does seek forgiveness, godliness calls me to quickly Grant it. That doesn't mean I act like nothing happened. And that doesn't eliminate all consequences down the road. But it it does mean, listen here, it does mean that I'm not holding something against my brother or sister. I don't consider them as being in my debt and therefore having to earn a relationship back. No, I forgive them. I say the account is settled. Reconciled. 
I, I forgive them. And I help move that relationship from fractured or alienated to reconciled. So I'll just put the question before you again. When forgiveness is sought, are you quick to grant it? And perhaps also, when you wrong someone, are you quick to seek forgiveness? These are foundational acts of godliness. Again, Paul's teaching in verse 13 is not exhaustive. It's not all that we should do. There are other actions to help us grow in godliness. But the ones listed here are essential. They're even foundational. We grow in others-oriented godliness by being forbearing and forgiving. And therefore, each of us is led to ask from the Word of God, is this true of me? That still leaves the second question. Where do we find the strength to live like this? I don't like forbearing with people. Because it's not easy. Neither forbearance nor forgiveness are easy. So where does the strength come from to to live this way? Well, notice the end of verse 13 through verse 14. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put simply, friends, the kind of strength, the strength needed for this kind of godliness comes from the Gospel of Christ. As I reflect on Christ's forgiveness towards me, I am strengthened to extend forgiveness to others. The Gospel frees me to forgive as I have been forgiven. And as I understand that Christ loved me when I was unlovely, then I am empowered and strengthened to forbear and love others in a similar way. You see, it's not an overstatement to say that the Gospel alone provides what we need to grow in this kind of godliness. And so, these opening verses show us really the counterintuitive way that Christians grow in Christ-like character. We grow not by looking inward to our own resources or even to our own feelings. We grow by looking outward to what Christ has already accomplished at the cross. Godly Christians are Gospel-saturated Christians. And godly churches are Gospel-rich churches. So in terms of application, friends, let's be people who deeply embrace the Gospel. Let's remind ourselves and each other often of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. How He loved us before we loved Him. That's why we read 1 John 4. How He purchased our forgiveness even though it was costly. How He laid aside His own preferences in order to prefer us. Let's reflect on those things. Let's remind ourselves of those things. And then with that Gospel firmly in view, let's labor to love one another in the same way. Godliness grows in community. That's what we see here in these three verses. And it does so as that community is marked by the Gospel. That emphasis on the Gospel actually leads into the second mark in this passage. Godliness prioritizes Gospel peace. Godliness grows in community and godliness prioritizes gospel peace. Notice Paul's second command, this time in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now you can hear Paul's continued focus 
on how Christians should conduct their daily lives. That word rule in verse 15 means just what it sounds like it means. It means to control something, to make decisions, to apply judgments. So, Paul is still concerned with practical godliness, with what should define and control how we live. That's his concern. But the key question of verse 15 concerns that phrase, the peace of Christ. What exactly is the peace of Christ? Again, it's clear that this peace should rule over us. It should determine how we act. But what exactly is it? What is the peace of Christ? Well, first of all, we should be clear that the peace of Christ does not refer to an inner sense of calmness or tranquility. The peace here is not necessarily a state of mind. It's actually much more significant than that. And the reason we can say that is because of how Paul speaks of peace in another passage, in Ephesians chapter 2. This is where it helps to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. So I want to know what the peace of Christ means in Colossians 3. So what do I do? I go look for other places where Paul talked about peace in connection with Christ, and I see if that helps me. And it does here. Ephesians 2 helps us understand Colossians 3. Now you probably know that Ephesians 2 is most well known for Paul's glorious explanation of salvation by grace through faith. When I say Ephesians 2, you probably think of Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. But if you continue reading in Ephesians chapter 2, you'll find Paul discussing peace. He actually spends more time on peace than he does on faith in Ephesians 2. And specifically, he talks about peace between fellow Christians. And Paul's point is incredibly important. Through Christ, God breaks down the barriers of hostility that exist between people. And God brings those people together in Jesus so that there's now one new body in the place of the two. In other words, peace for Paul is his shorthand summary of what has happened in the Gospel. This is is Paul's one word summary of what Jesus has done. Peace is what he's saying. Peace between sinners and God vertically, but also peace between one another horizontally. Peace between human beings in human relationships. For Paul, this primarily applied to Jews and Gentiles, but more broadly, it speaks to the unity that is central to the Gospel's work in the church. In Christ, God brings estranged people together so that there's peace where there was hostility. So, now look back at verse 15 in Colossians 3. When Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, his point is, is about the Gospel. His point is that we must allow the Gospel with all of its fruits to shape how we interact with one another. This is a call to live out in the church what Christ has brought together in Himself. Let me say that again. This is a call to live out in the church what Christ has brought together in Himself. Friends, the church should be a living illustration of this Gospel peace. This is why Jesus Himself emphasized so often the unity that should mark 
the relationships between brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's because the peace of Christ, the unity of God's people in Jesus, that peace is a primary mark of the Gospel's presence. And if you notice the next phrase in verse 15, you'll find confirmation for our interpretation here. Notice again where Paul goes. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Then notice what he says, to which indeed you were called in one body. To what kind of body have we been called? One body, a unified body. The peace here is about God's people united in the Lord Jesus. And so friends, Paul is urging us to live out in the church what Christ has brought together in Himself. When we make decisions, when we deal with conflict, when we approach one another, our overriding concern should be to display with our lives what we confess with our mouths. Display with our lives what we confess with our mouths. If Christ has reconciled you and me to God and you and me together, then by all means, we must seek as much as it depends upon us to live at peace with one another. That's what Paul is saying. Our governing principle should be to maintain and display the peace Christ established through His blood. So here are some questions that we can ask ourselves, that we should ask ourselves regularly. And I I would encourage you to perhaps even write these down somewhere where you can go back to them on a regular basis. Maybe even go back to them on that first Sunday of the month when we take the Lord's Supper. These are, I think these are good questions to ask when it comes to the peace of Christ. Am I quick to put other people's preferences ahead of my own? Am I willing to be inconvenienced for the good of a fellow Christian? Do I look for ways to outdo other people in showing them honor? To consciously elevate their concerns ahead of my own? Am I willing to not get my way in order that someone else might be blessed and encouraged? Friends, those might sound like small things. Perhaps even things that are easy to overlook. But I hope you're hearing from God's Word, from verse 15 in particular, that such such actions are anything but small. It's not just about being nice. It's about displaying the peace of Christ. This is how the peace of Christ rules among us as we consciously act for the sake of the body, as we deliberately take steps to display the glorious truth that God has brought His people together in Him. Godliness prioritizes gospel peace, and so may God help us to be ruled by the peace of Christ. That's the second mark. The third and final mark of godliness comes in verse 16. Godliness flows from the church's life together. Godliness flows from the church's life together. Again, Paul issues a command. Notice what he writes, beginning of verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now the first point we should note here is that the Word of Christ refers to the Gospel message. The message that was proclaimed by the apostles and has now come down to us in the New Testament. If you think back to chapter 1 here in the book of Colossians, 
Paul reminded these believers that the Word was bearing fruit among them, just as it was also bearing fruit throughout the entire world. What was that Word? Chapter 1, verse 5. It was the Word of truth, the Gospel. So, when Paul speaks of the Word of Christ, here in chapter 3, verse 16, he's thinking primarily of the Gospel message. The good news that Jesus laid aside His heavenly glory in order to take on our humanity. That Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to the Word of God, never once dishonoring His Father in thought, word, or deed. That having lived a life of perfection, Jesus laid down His life at the cross as the atonement for sin. And having been buried for three days, Jesus rose again to new life and ascended again to the Father's right hand. That good news, friends, that Gospel message, that's the Word of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he says must dwell in us richly. So I, I hope, I, I hope, <laughs> I hope you see why we've been coming back to the Gospel again and again and again throughout this message and throughout this series. Without a deepening dependence on the Gospel, we will not have the kind of forbearing, forgiving, and unified life we're called to as a church. Listen, I, I know, I understand that it's a bit of a cliche nowadays to talk about being Gospel-centered. But we're not talking cliches and we're not interested in slogans. We're looking at the text of the Bible. We're looking at God's Word. And here we have the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul telling us quite clearly, you cannot move on from the Gospel. You can't go anywhere else because you don't need to go anywhere else. This is what must richly dwell among us. This Word of Christ, the Gospel message. Of course, that raises a question. I like to ask questions of the Bible. You probably figured that out. This raises a question. How exactly does this happen? How does the Word of Christ dwell among us richly? Well, note the kindness of God in the remainder of verse 16 in that He tells us how it happens. He gives us further instruction. Look at the rest of verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, that is a compelling picture of the church gathered together in worship. Now, there's, there's a lot of pieces in verse 16, so I'm going to read it again in a way that I hope amplifies Paul's point. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase verse 16 a bit in order to try to draw out what Paul is saying. So let's listen to it again. Verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you by teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as you sing to God with thankful hearts. By, through, as. I hope that draws out what Paul is saying. The corpor- Listen, this, this, this is a bit... This is a bit challenging to how we'd normally think about the church gathered together. Challenging in a good way. The corporate act of singing God's Word is a means through which the Gospel comes to dwell in and among us. You see, it's more than music. It's discipleship happening in and among us as we worship together singing the Word of God. But there's more. As we worship together in one body, we're actually teaching one another the truths of the faith. 
and we're admonishing one another to live in step with the gospel. Think about that, friends. As we worship the Lord together, we're actually discipling one another. I've had a number of people say to me, I could never make disciples. I don't know how to do discipleship. Come to church and sing. We're, we're involved in this work together. Now, of course, there are other ways of making disciples. Paul's not giving an exhaustive list, but he is giving a foundational list. This is not exhaustive, but let's not miss the point that he is making. The corporate gathering of the church is a divinely appointed means of gospel ministry. It is an act of discipleship. The body building itself up together in love. This is one of the primary ways that the Word of Christ comes to dwell in us as we gather together to worship God. Friends, we have only had the Bible in our language for 500 years. So for the first 1,500 years of the church's life, if the people of God wanted to get the Word of God, where would they go? To the church of God. To hear it. Sung and read and preached and proclaimed. By all means, we treasure the Word of God written in our language, but we shouldn't minimize the Word of God among us. Do you see it? This is how the body grows, or it's a way that the body grows. There's still more. Look again at the text. This worship then spills out into everyday life. Notice verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We'll have more to say about this next week because Paul's going to say basically the same thing next week. But what I want us to see here this morning is that the worship of the gathered church should then spill out as believers scatter throughout the week. The worship of the gathered church spills out in the scattering of the church. So do you see the connection between verse 16 and verse 17? We gather for worship, verse 16, and then we scatter out to do whatever the Lord has given us to do, verse 17. And we do so in Jesus' name, giving thanks to the Father. Friends, that is the Christian life in summary form. Jesus reigns over everything. So we gather to worship Him, and then we scatter to do whatever He's given us to do. All of life then becomes oriented around the Lordship of Christ. It's it's a truly beautiful picture of the body of Christ ministering to one another and to the world. We gather to worship, verse 16. We scatter to do whatever God has given us to do, verse 17. But as we move towards the conclusion, there's there's one more question I want to answer. And I hope it will be a specific encouragement to you and to our church today. The question is this. Why why does Paul single out singing? I see the emphasis on worship in verse 16. I understand the outward focus in verse 17. But why single out singing? Why not evangelism? Why not preaching? Why singing? Why such an emphasis on psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Well, to give you an answer, I'd like to ask you to think about Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. That might seem strange to you, but just go with me for a moment. Exodus 14, God divided the Red Sea so that Israel walked through on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow through, what happened? The sea crashed down and it destroyed 
the Egyptians. Exodus 14.30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. In verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. Exodus 14. But do you remember what the people of Israel did next? Immediately following their deliverance, while the sea is still foaming behind them, what did they do? The people of Israel sang. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, the horse and the rider God has thrown into the sea. You see, the song, the song captured the reality of God's redemption. And the song then allowed the people to remember. The song became a corporate memory. The song was a community-defining declaration. There is something uniquely formative about singing together as the people of God. It takes the truth of who God is and it plants that truth in the soil of our hearts so that we remember. Friends, you will probably never remember any phrase that I utter from behind the pulpit, but you will remember songs. And this is how God has intended it to be on some level. In remembering, in singing, we create a corporate memory. And in remembering, we grow in faithfulness. And the effect is often powerful, even if unseen. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again today. So you may have heard it, but I hope it will encourage you nonetheless. There was one Sunday in the early years of the church, and this, I mean, this was really early, when I, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to deliver the sermon that morning, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I was worn out, discouraged, run down, weary of soul. I had very little left to give, and I had no idea how I would get up and preach. But then during the fourth song, I heard the voice of a dear sister sitting directly behind me, and she was singing. And I knew that she was undergoing her own trials at that moment. And her trials were much more serious than mine. And here she was singing in faith to God. And in that moment, she admonished me. Even if she didn't know it. She taught me. She reminded me of what was true. And the Lord used her voice, raised in song, to cause the Word of Christ to dwell richly in my heart. And so I preached. Her ministry to me was God's means of enabling my ministry to her. And it happened with a song. It happened with a song in the gathering of the people of God. Brothers and sisters, that's the ministry of the body to one another. That's what God has called us to do together. To glorify His name by reminding one another of who He is and what He has done in Christ. And so the application, I hope, is clear and compelling for you today. Gather together for worship. Come together to worship Christ. Make it a priority to be part of this ministry to one another. Somewhere along the way, in our insistence in saying that Christianity is more than attending church, we've somehow made it less than attending church. Make it a priority to gather with the people of God. Not to, not to say you did some religious duty, but to help do the ministry. To help us bear one another's burdens and admonish and teach one another. And then when you gather for worship, sing. 
Sing with all your heart. I have a horrible voice and I'm going to sing really loud. Sing. Because that's how the Word of God comes to get planted down in the hearts of God's people. Again, it's so striking to me. I am a preacher. You will not remember any phrase that I utter from behind the pulpit, but you will remember a song. Godliness flows from the church's life together. And therefore, let's gladly take up the ministry and sing and remind one another of what God has done. Friends, I'm so encouraged that the Bible's vision for the church does not include the expectation that we be perfect. I'm very encouraged by this. A church does not have to be perfect to honor the Lord Jesus. In fact, it's precisely in our imperfections that the power of the Gospel shines most brightly. A Christ-centered church is not a perfect church. It is forbearing. It is forgiving. It runs hard after unity. And it ministers to one another out of love for Christ. I am so thankful that Colossians 3 doesn't simply say, stop wronging each other. How discouraging would that be? But instead, Paul gives us the only prescription that can actually deal with life as we really find it. He gives us the Gospel. He gives us the Gospel. And through that Gospel, we find the grace we need to grow in godliness. May that be true of us, friends. May we plead and beg God that this would be true of us for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are stunned at the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would love us when we were unlovely, that He would move towards us before we ever move towards Him. Father, we even think all the way back in the first verse of this paragraph that You have made us Your chosen people, holy and beloved. Why would You redeem sinners like us? Because of Your great love in Christ for the glory of Your name. Father, give us grace to love what Christ loves, and He loves His church. Help us to love one another in the power of His grace for the glory of His name, we pray. Amen. Would you all please stand? And let's sing the truth.